finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things, and then we talk about them. Uh, Sometimes what we read is a comic book, uh, and that is the case for this particular episode. Oh, also, Andrea is my mom and a librarian. That's probably particularly relevant because this is like a coming-of-age story, so I might try and relate it back to my life experience in which my mom is Andrea, (laughs) my co-host on this podcast. We read My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emile Ferris. This is our last uh, one-shot before we get into our next ongoing series. This is a really interesting comic. It's it's maybe the only comic I can think of outside of, like, autobio and diary comics that is in the first person. Yeah, this is a really avant-garde... I guess it's more... I'm going to say graphic novel. Yeah, it's a graphic novel. I mean, comic book is the... The general term for the format, I th- for the medium, and then graphic novel is like the format. I, I, I try to think. I tend to think of it as like saying prose, and then you know a novel is a form of prose. A graphic novel is a form of comic. But yeah, this is very much a you know it's it's there is ostensibly going to be a part two to this, uh, and there have been dates announced for the release that have like come and gone. So I have no idea what the status of that is. But I think this functions totally well as a self-contained story that just happens to have an ambiguous ending. Well, first of all, my favorite thing is Monsters was published in 2017. Who was the publisher? It's Fantagraphics. Fantagraphics. I think we've read some stuff by Fantagraphics before. Maybe How to Be Happy might have been a Fantagraphics comic. I can't actually remember. So, and it was drawn by Emile Farris. And this is her first graphic novel. And yeah. I guess she... Is a tour designer from Chicago. She's a graphic designer and concept artist, draftsman, draftsperson. I don't know what the gender neutral term for that thing is. I, I saw like an interview with her. She designed. Um, she worked for like I think Hasbro and Takara Tommy at one point, but she also designed uh, Happy Meal toys. Ah, oh, interesting. But yeah, this is her first comic book, and from what I have heard, she. Basically wrote and drew the entire thing while she was recovering from West Nile virus. Yeah, and it took her 15 years to complete. And at this point, the volume one is over 400 pages. I think it's a little bit under 400 pages. It's like 300 something. Yeah, so that's why it was originally... Originally it was one book that was almost 700 pages, and then it was decided to break it into two books, which really makes sense when you get to the ending. It's a, a really natural Yeah, there's point. a clear point where they where she could have stopped and started a new part. Uh, whatever that does come out, we'll definitely cover it on the show, but I have no idea when it is coming. Yeah, the last I read just said 2021. There, so, I mean, yeah. the whole, I mean, it's, it's just... It's a beautiful book, and it's worth reading, but it has such a tragic story. Like you said, Ferris was suffering from West Nile virus. She was paralyzed for a portion of her recovery and was forced to teach herself how to draw again. Yeah, which she chose a really interesting uh, concept for it because the book, like I said, the book is basically in first person in that it's the comic is being drawn almost in real time by the lead character of the story. 
it, it, the it is essentially her like diary. Right. So she's and the character I said it's coming of age story is a child. So she's drawing it obviously above the level that a child would draw it, but I think that mindset of like let me put myself in the mind of a child to draw the comic that a child is trying to make as a way to teach yourself to how to draw again is a really smart idea and it leads to the, a really compelling work. Yeah, I think what's interesting about this is it's all drawn on what looks to be notebook paper. It's supposed to be the character, her name is Karen. It's supposed to be her notebook, like Nate said. And it's drawn using pens and um, some colored markers. The use of color is outstanding in this book. And it's just sort of really well done technically. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I want to say right now, like, go go read it, if please. Now, I will say that, like, I guess like a, a content warning or a trigger warning. It goes to some, as we alluded to, it goes to some really dark and tragic places. Uh, there's some ab- abuse, uh, abuse of children. Uh, there's a fair amount that is about the Holocaust in this. Like, it gets very dark at parts. But if you can handle that, you should definitely go read it. Uh, yeah, I made a list of some of the triggers. There's violence, bullying, sexual abuse... Death. There's a focus on World War Two. Mm-hmm. There's an episode that deals with drugs. Um, there's some stuff about gender questioning and things like that, which I think are not mm-hmm. necessarily trigger warnings. But yeah, but it's not. It's, it's, this is not a book for children. No, no. Even though it's about a child. Yeah. There's also uh, homophobia is a big issue in the book too, uh, like that bullying hat, like. Well, the book takes place in in the nineteen sixties in Chicago in a working class neighborhood. I think it's specifically nineteen sixty seven or nineteen sixty eight. I don't remember if she ever says the exact date, but early on there is a Planet of the Apes coming soon marquee on a movie theater, which that movie came out in nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, and I think part of it has to deal. Part of the plot line later on has to deal with the death of Martin Luther King. Well, yeah, okay, I guess that that, that would help uh, center it much more clearly. I was just thinking, because that was my first clue early on. I'm not trying to say, you know, this is ridiculous. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, it's I'm, it's pretty clearly set in the late 60s. Yeah, it's in Chicago, I don't know if we mentioned that, uh, in a lower class neighborhood. Uh, but also, I wanted to be clear, like, when you're like, oh, this thing is like drawn on notebook paper. That is, like, very literal. Like, you see the lines, mm-hmm. you see the spiral. It looks like high-quality photocopies from directly from a spiral-bound notebook. And the whole thing is drawn in black-blue, almost entirely drawn in black-blue and red ballpoint pen. And it uses, like, I'm not surprised that this took her 15 years, even discounting her recovering from a paralysis-inducing disease. Just because there's so much detail, she uses a lot of cross-hatching and stippling to add detail to the work. And a lot of it is extremely detailed. It has like this, it has like a very naturalistic sort of attitude towards detail where sometimes just to get through the events, the pages will become much more simplistic the characters will become much more sort of gestural. And then there are moments when it's clear that, like, something has caught Karen's eye or some detail is important or she's trying to express 
some emotion through someone's face and it will suddenly become much more detailed to the point where like there are pages that are almost like just portraits of characters who are you know being who are talking or being talked about or being regarded in those scenes and then yeah so it's like it's a hugely uh labor intensive work well yeah there's one page well there's some there's some pages where you can if you look really closely at the page to make it even more seem like it's Karen's notebook, there you can see like an underlayer, almost like a pound set of mm-hmm. like math homework, which on top of it she draws these pictures. So when you look at it, there's such a high level of detail. And then in between the chapters, there's full page reconstructions of horror or monster magazine covers. Yeah, those are essentially the chapter breaks because the the. You know, our lead character, Karen, is obsessed with, like, old school... Well, which would not necessarily be old school at the time. But with monster movies, universal horror, EC comics, and stuff like that. And uh, those cover recreations are really great because they're they're still sort of drawn... They're still drawn in the same style. They have more color work in them than the other parts. But then a lot of times they're, like, commenting on or foreshadowing events in the story. But they're still done in this very, like, faithful recreation of that those actual covers from those magazines and comics yeah because i mean once you know that karen is obsessed with these universal monster characters and in fact she she herself is depicted as a wolf person because i guess she like a, like a wolf man like in the style of like the wolf man like the like yeah she's got like a little pompadour and but she's still feminine and you can start to see that she sort of identifies the people that she cares about as other universal monsters. Mm-hmm. And then when she's telling those stories, the colors that are identified with those monsters are used in the story for that chapter. So when she talks about her brother, who she depicts as a Dracula, mm-hmm. you see a lot of the use of the color red. And then later on, there's a creature from the Black Lagoon character, and you see a lot of the use of the color green. So yeah. she kind of uses the color as sort of a signal to like how Karen feels about the person that she's put in the story. Yeah, everybody she cares about, with the notable and deliberate exception of her mom, is identified with some form of monster. Uh, and then there's sort of, that becomes like a visual motif for them. And yeah, there's like the color thing, like you mentioned. Uh, do you want to get oh, in? Oh. Before you get into it, I just want to say that it was the 2018 Eisner Award winner for Best Writer slash Artist. Ferris won that for herself. And it was the 2017 Ignatz. Yeah, that's the, I believe that's, those are the words that are given out at some of the small press expo. Yeah. Named after Ignatz Mouse from, uh. Crazy Cat. That was uh, the, for best graphic. Do you novel. know what the Ignatz Award looks like? It's one of my favorite. No. It's just a brick. Oh, yeah? Because Ignatz is, you know, he throws the brick at Crazy Cat. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's literally just like a brick from like a hardware store. Yeah, I guess we should get into the actual story. So it, it starts with, you know, where we get our introduction to Karen and, you know, framed like a uh, werewolf transformation we get introduced to her home life, and so she lives in this apartment, in this apartment building full of these weird characters, uh, and she lives with her mom and her older brother, 
and her brother is like significantly older than her. He is a, he is an adult, uh, and her mom is like this sweet Appalachian woman who's like very folksy and upbeat. And there's a sequence that is important to the end of the story that happens here, where she talks about how her mom has this like green splotch in her eye, and that she like looks at this like splotch in her mom's eye and she thinks of it as being this like green island and it becomes kind of this like mind palace for her that like when she's struggling or she can't sleep or whatever she goes to the green island uh and that becomes like the setting for the final sequence in the story yeah but see this is the part where i thought that the werewolf part where she transforms into the werewolf was a dream that she was having I guess. And then her mom comes in and asks her specifically, is the dream... What does her mom say? Oh, is it? Yeah, she... she, The village dream again, Karen, she says. That's why I thought that maybe she was having that dream. We find out, like, what the werewolf thing is actually a metaphor for later on in the story. Right. But, yeah, we get introduced early on to this, like, that she draws herself as this werewolf. She's got this sweet mom. Uh, She lives in this apartment. And she's friends with this... A woman who also lives in the apartment building named Anka, who's this, like, mysterious lady with a cat named King Tut. Yeah, and I think Anka is depicted... I mean, I, she's not the mummy. She's sort of, like, this mystical sort of person. And later on, her husband is obviously supposed to be Yeah, her husband is drawn to look pretty much exactly like... Uh, Boris Karloff as the mummy but with a ponytail but I mean I think she's sort of connected to the like the woman that the mummy is obsessed with in that story who's like the reincarnation of his uh, wife but there is all of this like mummy in Egypt imagery around her cat is named King Tut he also has an onk on his head yeah and she's depicted in this blue colored yeah, and then her husband gets that too later on in the Well, story. her husband also is named Hot Step, which is... So, yeah, yeah, sounds like Imhotep. <laughs> Sam Hot Step. Yeah, that's... Uh, but she, in the she... opening of the story, she gets murdered. Yeah, she's, con- she's a Holocaust survivor, but she's also sort of this damaged figure... And she's kind of, um, there's a scene in there where Karen and her mom come across her and she's in this sort of fugue state and she's walking around and these two men are coming up to her and Karen and her mother help Anka go back home because she's obviously lost in some kind of memory of of some traumatic event that she's reliving. Yeah, she, so like, we get introduced to like Karen at school. She's like a, she's... She's going to school and it's Valentine's Day. And she brings, like, these morbid Valentines with... Where she's used, like, red paint and pasta to make, like, realistic bleeding hearts. And this is one of the parts where it's really kind of interesting because one of the pages... She gets a Valentine and it says... It's like those kind of corny valentine to get in grade school and it says i'm nuts about you mm. and she draws the actual valentine to look like it's taped or glued into the scrap yeah uh and she gets in trouble for her valentines and we see like that she's sort of isolated from the other kids in class and she's obsessed with monsters and all this morbid stuff and that's like where we get the her drawing over like the math homework 
And then when she comes home, she can't get into the apartment because the police are there because Anka has died. And her mom go off to this, uh, like, diner. And one of my, the funniest parts to me of the, like, little funny details of the story is when she's talking about walking into a warm, steamy diner during a Chicago winter is like going from Alaska to a tropical country where the president is a giant onion ring who smothers you with greasy bear hugs while chain smoking. <laughs> yeah, and it also starts to show you that even though... Karen is different. She has this really strong support system. Like her brother and her mother are very supportive of her. And the neighborhood and the people that she knows in her close neighborhood are supportive of her. Yeah. And then but then she does have problems with some of the kids at school kind of not accepting her for who she is. Well, yeah, I'm worse than that later on. But yeah, that's the other thing. Like we've talked we did all you know, we did all the like trigger warnings and stuff, and I feel like we maybe gave I don't want to give people the wrong impression. Whereas like, the book does go to some really dark and harrowing and upsetting places. I would like ultimately describe it as being a kind of sweet and funny book. Like it's it most of that is because like the really dark stuff is just a, is our stories that Karen is being told rather than the things that are actually happening to her. And she has like a really interesting perspective and her observations are really funny. Uh, but while they're waiting at the diner, we see, we meet that one of their neighbors who is a very nervous ventriloquist who is already at the diner with his ventriloquist dummy. And then her brother Dees arrives. Uh, yeah, and it, I guess we should mention that he is much older yeah, than she is. He's like in his mid-twenties, I think. Yeah, and she's supposed to be in middle school. So there's a quite a bit gap. And then... Their father is not there. In He's, fact, she depicts him at one point as the Invisible Man. A couple times she depicts him as the Invisible Man. There's a detail that we get later where Dee's like scratches his photo, his picture out of the photos and then redraws him as the Invisible Man. But yeah, he's completely absent from the story. We just sort of feel his influence. He's, some, he's an Hispanic man. They're both, you know, half white, half uh, Latinx. Um, and then Dee's is an artist and kind of a ladies' man. He's also hot. It's important to note that Dee's is incredibly hot. Uh, he does have that sort of, like, dirty kind he, of... He kind of looks like Vincent Gallo. Yeah. Um, and he, he's... We see... Like, I don't think we see any of his art, right? We see lots and lots of Karen's art, because that's the whole comic. But he's talked about as being an artist... He inspires her to be an artist. He's supposedly always drawing, but I don't know if we ever see any of his stuff. Well, I think the scene where she goes to the art institute, because it takes place in Chicago. That's, that's my favorite part of the book. We'll yeah, that's a really great part where Ferris starts to draw in the style of the artwork that they see. But he talks a lot about his art while they're at the art museum. Mm-hmm. And kind of like that's sort of an inspiration for her. Yeah, but he's got, um, he's always got ink on his hands and he leaves ink spots everywhere. And there is flies, his, the, their mom calls them Deez's flies and beetles. Uh, and this is where we find out that, I believe this is where we find out that Anka is death is being ruled as a suicide she but it's like very fishy she like shot herself in the chest and then tucked herself into bed but there's no blood 
on the bed, and the room, the apartment is completely locked. Yeah, and then this is when I guess Karen decides that at this point, I think it is that she's going to investigate the murder of her friend and neighbor Anka. Yeah, there's like specifically there's, there's a part where they're cleaning up the basement, and she sees this door that has one of those green man ornaments over it, um, and that's locked, and that also becomes like an important symbol. Uh, there's also this thing about, like, roses. She finds, like, a rose down there. Roses also become an important uh, symbol later on. Yeah, and what's... The mom is, like, doing some kind of, like, burning sage or doing some kind of incense to clean the place while they're down there. Yeah, it was also... she. No, she has this thing where, like, if you do something unlucky... There's, like, a, something happens... With, I forget, at the diner with, like, pie that's, like, an omen... Uh, and she ha- she's very superstitious and very religious, and she have to like burn a representation of the bad omen. So they go down to the basement, and you know that's where we find out that her her mom is this like super superstitious woman. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> Karen decides she's going to solve the mystery, and we get this really great sequence where she's talking about like how she goes to like a Catholic school. Yes. And she get, they get taught about um, St. Christopher, who is the werewolf saint. He has a dog for a head. And there's she identifies with him. And there, she's, like, thinking about becoming a detective to solve this mystery. And we get this great image of her in, a, like, a detective's outfit with a fedora and a trench coat. And this drawing of St. Christopher with his hand on his shoulder and his giant wolf. And he says, look, Karen, if I can be a saint, then you could definitely be a detective. <laughs> She starts the investigation. We get a little bit more about Karen. Uh, we get her sort of lineup of suspects who were basically just everybody in her apartment building. I think this, I like the one part where the, she depicts the, what is his name? The man who has the chug. She depicts him, She go, like there's a picture of him and then underneath there's a little colored square of a, like one of the famous paintings of the little monster that's at the art institute i wish i could think remember what it was uh oh it's uh oh yeah i know what you're talking about it's, the sin eater i think it's yeah called. yeah it's like a uh, a little gremlin that's perched on this like woman that's like seductively asleep in this like the, the, the nightmare the nightmare yeah it's the the sleep paralysis demon i've people have seen it uh, but yeah, so she goes over the sus- the people in the apartment complex. So there's Mr. Samuel Silverberg, who's Anka's husband, who's a jazz man who was at a gig in Peoria. There's Mr. Laughing Jack Gronin. He's the guy who owns the building, I believe. He's kind of like a mob guy. Uh, he was at the Green Man Club, and he's drawn to look like the Green Man thing. This is all very important later. Uh, his wife, who had been in her sister's in Milwaukee... She's this sort of like loud mouth gossip nosy neighbor housewife that Karen doesn't seem to really like that much. No. Uh, and then her brother who was at work, her mom who had also been at work. But she was at the diner, so that's the confusion that Karen had. Yeah. And she then, said she was coming from work, but she was at the diner. And then there's Mr. Chug who doesn't, doesn't have an alibi and was also already at the diner. When they showed up, like, he knew not to go home. And then an unknown suspect, someone I don't know yet. That's the last 
possible suspect. That's like classic in even like Agatha Christie where there's always one of the suspects on the list is an unknown suspect. Yeah. And she uh, she talks more about D's next, about a time she walked on him having sex. And also he's got like a full chest of tattoos that includes uh, his uh, two heroes and namesakes who are Emilio Zapata and Diego Rivera, but also their mom and a spider and a beetle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think this is when Karen starts to realize that her brother was having a relationship with Anka. Yeah, we get the beginning of the hints of this. is also where the Invisible Man thing happens. Uh, we get to see him inspiring her to become an artist. And then we get the art museum sequence, which I think is my, like I said, is my favorite part of the story where she flashes back to this trip they took to what is this museum specifically it's the art institute of chicago okay yeah and we get these sequences where they're like full page you know like splash pages with the paintings they're looking at and them looking at them in this dialogue they're having where Dee's is like talking about the art to her and then like the art is leaking into the space where they're viewing it um it's really clever the way that she does it. Yeah, and it's like a really great depiction of like being excited about sharing art with people. And there's like a reflection of this sequence later on where she takes her friends to the art museum and basically the same thing happens. Uh, there's a part where they're looking at a, a Sunday afternoon and they become like pointillism. Uh, and then the probably the most important thing that happens is when they see... The painting of St. George Killing the Dragon uh, by Bernat Martorell. It's like a real super famous painting where it's like, it's the one where the dragon's at the bottom of the painting and he's got like the spear. Mm -hmm. And he, it's introduced by Dee saying, sometimes it's like I'm in the painting. And she talks about how she kind of views the, you know, there's, a part early on where they're talking about triangles and like the importance of triangles in art. And she talks about the triangle that is made in this painting between the princess, the knight, you know, St. George and the dragon. And that she kind of views all the three points of that triangle as being elements of D's. And she kind of sees him in each of them. And we get to see her draw him as each of these figures and so, like, the princess is this sort of, like, gentle, artistic, loving side of him. And the knight is this, like, you know, the brave, noble, you know, big brother that stands up for her. And then the dragon is his sort of, like, rage and resentment that he has. And, like, there's all these unresolved issues that bubble up to the top, uh, you know, of his personality at times. And, like, this, I think, with the introduction of the dragon... Is where we get the first hints that something will happen later on where she struggles with the idea that maybe Dee's is the killer. Yeah, I think she goes through a lot of the suspects and either rules them out or keeps them as suspects. Yeah, that's kind of the structure early on. But then the end of the sequence is this like fantasia where she like goes into the painting and crawls into the cave in the corner and meets this like child version of Dee's who's crying and says, I did something terrible. And then there's no resolution to that immediately. It just sort of cuts back into the present. And she gives a kind of overview of like, 
the many women Dees has brought home over the years. Yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of times when I was reading this, I wasn't quite sure if there really was a mystery or it was just I think there's... Karen's way of trying to deal with the death of... Because I don't think she's really dealt with death in her life. And I think this is kind of like she didn't know what happened to Anka and she kind of made this mystery. Yeah. Yeah, it is unclear because it's like it's entirely possible that Anka did just commit suicide and this kid can't deal with that. So she constructs this mystery story to help herself cope with it. But it also like the all the hints are there. It still does kind of feel like a mystery. But it's one of those things where it's like she's not a kid detect like this isn't, you know, Detective Conan or the Hardy Boys or whatever. Like she's not a kid detective. She's not really equipped to solve and investigate a mystery. Even if there is a mystery there. But she keeps trying, at least. Yeah, and I think it's also helpful to her because as she is solving the mystery, she becomes more self-aware. And she also comes to an understanding about different parts of her life. Which is almost like her journey of personal growth that she takes on in this way that protects her from any kind of sensitive emotions by distancing herself as this detective yeah well then that goes even further in this sort of next sequence where she gets her uniform she asks d is to borrow his old trench coat and hat and she like pins it up and then throughout the rest of the story she's dressed in this like noir detective outfit but one she's a little kid and two she's a little kid who's drawing herself as the wolf man so it's this little werewolf detective becomes our protagonist for the rest of the story and it's great and this is also then she has the flashback where her mom steps in and stops his dudes from accosting Anka while she's sort of in this distressed state wandering around the neighborhood naked and uh the notable detail is that she has the ink blots all over her back yes during the sequence and this is supposed to have taken place like years ago and then they bring her back to her apartment, and that's like where we first sort of meet Sam. And that's kind of our introduction to him as a major character. Yeah, and I think the people in the apartment building, the, especially the adults, know Anka's story. Karen does not. Yeah. So they kind of are more understanding of the strange things that she does. I mean, Anka, on, I mean, I mean, Karen sort of knows it. Like, she knows that she's like a Holocaust survivor. Because there's a part later on where she talks about uh, she would go and, like, draw while sort of hiding in the jungle of houseplants that Anka had on, like, the landing of the stairs in the apartment building. And she, Anka would, like, sort of kind of play with her and be like, oh, you know, I'll let you know when the when the when the uh, the ISS has gone or whatever. And so she knows that like, she was like in the Holocaust or whatever, but she doesn't know the specifics of the story. But she learns them later, and they are horrifying. But before that happens, we get this whole sequence about uh, her friend, uh, Missy, her ex-friend Missy. Uh, this felt very real to me, the like weird, like, intricacies of elementary school friendship and like I was friends with this person and now we're not anymore and she was friends with this girl Missy who's now falling in with the popular kids but they used to watch like horror movies together and Missy loved Dracula and now she likes pink and boys and 
Karen doesn't really understand what happened, but she still, like, holds this affection for Missy. And this is where it starts to become clear that, like, Karen, you know, is gay. She clearly has a crush on Missy, and she doesn't fully understand what that means or what's happened with their friendship. Yeah, I think this is sort of the one of the saddest parts of the story. Yeah. Because she doesn't really... Yeah, like you said, she doesn't really understand what happened to their friendship. And also, she cares about Missy, and Missy starts to treat her poorly when the, when other kids are around. Yeah, she, the, she joins in with the kids that are bullying her and disavows their friendship. Uh, but then... Karen makes a new friend who is this girl named Sandy. And the relationship is not the same as her relationship with Missy. And Sandy is this, like, very blunt uh, character. She, like, immediately tells Karen that she looks like the Wolfman. Because uh, I guess I guess she's, like, hairy? I don't know why you would tell a little girl that she looks like the Wolfman. Uh, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. I'm going mean, to look. Like, I was told that I looked like the Wolfman now and when I was a child, but I'm an extremely hairy dude. Uh, well, I guess Sandy is depicted as this very thin, blonde-haired girl with big buck teeth. <laughs> she says you look like the Wolfman who's a, who's a detective. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and she's, like, neglected. She has the same sort of, like, cultural background as... Karen's mom. She's identified with, like, a ghost. And to the point where it's almost ambiguous whether or not she exists. Because it seems like other characters can't see her. Yeah, and I mean, obviously what's going on with Sandy is she lives with a very neglectful family. They're they're incredibly poor. They live in, like, a run-down apartment where they have no furniture. And they, I guess she's hungry all the time. And she keeps asking people for food and candy. Yeah, But... She accepts Karen, like, mm. right away. Like, they're both two outsiders, and they became, become friends. But it's interesting because with Missy, Karen was the sort of instigator of the friendship. She kept the friendship going, mm-hmm. and she was always trying to reconcile with her. And even after they had this falling out, she was kind of like, do you still want to be friends? And she kept trying to talk to her about monster movies until finally she realized that, like, the friendship was over. But on this friendship, Karen doesn't pursue Sandy. Yeah. They're just sort of, like, two friends that are together. Mm-hmm. At one point, it's a really sad point. She go- she gets invited to Sandy's birthday, and she goes, and, like, there's no people, and there's no party stuff, and there's no food. Yeah, and she's taking her back to her house, and then, like, Karen's mom feeds them, and... That's very nice. And then she like is like, "Wow, like you're like you have the perfect life." Like she's just like from Karen's point of view, she just has a regular life. But from Sandy's point of view, she's living in the lap of luxury. Well, yeah, her parents. Are, I don't remember if it's introduced here or later, but we find out that her parents were like killed by Pinkertons. Yes, that they were like miners who were like trying to unionize and got killed by. Union busters. Yeah, and then Karen's aunt and uncle, I mean Sandy's aunt and uncle, who don't really have children and don't seem to want children, leave the, I guess, the Appalachian town that they're from to go Mm. to Chicago to try to have a better life. And they're living, obviously, below the poverty level. Yeah. 
And then we also get get another really great like sequence of just a great art where she's walking around Chicago. Karen's walking around Chicago with these, and we get all these great, super detailed caricatures of all the like figures in the neighborhood and like the people they're walking by. Uh, this is where we get introduced to Deez's friend Jeffrey the Brain Alvarez, uh, who also has a pet rabbit. Yeah, and he's kind of like the mad scientist character. Yeah, he's like the smart dude that Deez is friend with, but he, he comes up later on, they have to take care of his rabbit, who is a jerk. <laughs> yes, except to the mom. Yeah. Uh, you know, then there's the whole sequence where she goes to the party, and then uh, we find out... Uh, well, it's like we're not explicitly told here, but it's like clear their their mom has to give them some sort of bad news. And what we realize, like over the next little while of the story, is that she has breast cancer. Yeah, and I think this is hard for Karen to understand because her mom has always taken care of her. Yeah, and then it's also hard for Dee's because now he realizes that. He is going to have to take care of Karen because the mom, she's not going to get better from this. This is She's sort of at the point in her disease where she tells them, you know, she has breast cancer. And they both realize that the mother is not going to survive this. Uh, yeah, there's, there's this whole thing where, you know, Karen talks about, like, we, we find out that part of her deal with monsters is this idea that, like, you become a monster and you, like, stop being a person. You don't have, like, the problems that a person has. A werewolf doesn't die of old age or cancer or whatever. And so she has this, like, dream of, like, oh, I'll get, like, bit by a werewolf and I can bite my family and we can be monsters together and we don't have to deal with all of our problems. And she has to come to the realization over the rest of the story that that is a fantasy and that's not going to happen. And she has to deal with the fact that, like, you know, her mom is going to die. Uh, and does by the end of the story. And it's really, really sad. Uh, and But then we get another one of my favorite sequences very soon after this. Where she's like hanging out with Dee's and she goes, she decides to leave to go find Sandy and Sandy's not home. So she puts on her detective outfit and starts walking around and she runs into some hippies who think that she's an actual detective. <laughs> yes. Um, and... She's, like, really angry at this point because of all the stuff going on in her life. And she, they're, they're like, hey, man, peace out. And she goes off on the, like, stupid, like, the peace sign. Like, this is stupid. It's, like, an illusion. It's a fantasy. She's not realizing it at the time, but it's clear that she's, like, connecting this sort of hippie dream with her monster dream and realizing that they're both kind of bogus. And she goes off on them and they're like, man, that little detective is a square. <laughs> Uh, and she's like, I think squares are great. And she starts yelling at them. And they're like, here you go, little detective. And they give her a bag of pot brownies. Which she doesn't know what they are because she's a kid. Right. Even though they think she's a detective. So she starts, they're like, just eat one of these. And she, uh, and don't eat more than a few bites each day. And then she eats the hippie brownie and wanders off into the Graceland Cemetery and has this, like, wild psychedelic dream sequence that eventually leads to her meeting Kate Warren, who's this, like, the, I think she's supposed to be the first woman to become a private detective. Yes. And uh, she's also from Chicago. And she becomes, like, this spirit guide to her. 
and like encourages her in solving the mystery. And she talks about like, you know, she tells her about the case, and she's like, "Oh, maybe like an old like an ex Nazi killed uh, Anka." That's like her going theory at this point. And she, Kate Warren, tells her about like all the different disguises she's had to wear, and about underground tunnels beneath the city. <laughs> All of it takes place in the cemetery. Yeah, the whole thing takes place in the cemetery. And she, like, confronts, like, a specter of death. And then she goes to a wig shop. <laughs> and eventually, uh, she goes home and gives... I don't know, when that happens way later, I guess, is when she when she gives Dee's and her mom. She buys a wig, right, at some point? What happens here? She goes... She goes to a wig shop. And, oh, yeah, she buys a... A wig, I guess. Uh, she walks in on D's with a woman. She wanders around the apartment building. She hides in the pot in Anka's potted plants that are like dying now. Uh, and then she sees Sam having an argument with some woman, and he's like losing it. And she, like, seems like she stops him from, like, trying to choke her. Is that Mrs. Uh, Gre- the mobster, what's his name? Gronin? Yeah, let me see. I don't know if that's supposed to be Mrs. Gronin. I think this is... Yeah, she just calls her the lady. I think she's just some woman. But this is when she links up with uh, Mr. Silverberg. And she tells him that, like, she's trying to solve the murder. And he is, like takes some sort of like comfort in this idea like like he's he ends up taking i think getting the same sort of thing out of the idea that she's going to solve the murder as she does where he's kind of like totally fallen apart without her uh over the last few days and so they decide to listen to these tapes that anka recorded where she tells her life story yeah i guess she was getting interviewed at some kind of oral history program for holocaust survivors yeah and this story is Brutal. Yes, it is. It is uh, really fucked up. So, like, well, first talk. They have that she has a full page description, like a image of Sam, and he's got these bandages all over his hands and his neck. Well, he's wearing like a turtleneck, I think. I don't oh, think that's he's... a turtleneck. Okay, so he has a bandage on his hand. He cut his hand in some kind of destructive way mm-hmm. after Anka's death. He's got a weird skin condition. Uh, he smells. He's got a blue smell about him from mentholated ointment. He has bandages on his hands and neck, but we don't see the neck ones because he's wearing a turtleneck. Yeah, it's a, it's like almost like he has psoriasis or something. Well, yeah, the uh, mama, Karen's mom, speculates that the sores are caused by guilt. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not guilt, but I can tell you as someone who uh, is prone to physical symptoms caused by my mental state, like that shit happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you get really stressed out. You get weird red splotches on your neck. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so then she, Sam starts to play the first tape, mm-hmm. which is the sort of beginning of the story that Anka tells about how, as a young child, she was raised in a brothel because her mother was... In Germany. In Germany. Her mother was a prostitute. And she ended up spending a lot of her time with the cook who worked at the brothel in her garden. And the cook tells her stories about Greek mythology, and it's, like, clear that, like, in the making of the comic, Karen clearly connects 
Anka's childhood uh, obsession with Greek mythology, with her obsession with monsters, like she uses the same techniques to weave the mythological imagery into Anka's story that she uses to weave the monster movie imagery into her own story, which is cool. I really like that technique. Uh, But yeah, she's raised in this brothel by, and she's like mostly raised by this cook in her garden. Uh, Her name is Sonia. And then at one point she's sent to make this delivery to this guy who owns a restaurant who is portrayed as this like we don't find out what he did but he did something horrible and he's portrayed as being this like shadowy demonic figure yeah and this is when you start to realize that bad things are happening to Anka and Karen might not understand what it is yeah maybe I don't know uh so at one point, Anka's mother gets obsessed with... She starts to lose her hair, and she becomes obsessed with this idea that the cook has cursed her. Or poisoned her, at least. Or poisoned her. Uh, yeah, and then, like, does she kill the cook or get her arrested or something? What happens to the cook? I think she dies. She gets poisoned. Yeah, and then, like, Anka puts on this bird costume. Again, it's, like, clearly reflected in the detective outfit. And she, like, again, this is one of those things where it's unclear exactly what happens. Like, the the storytelling gets vague, but it seems like she stabbed her mom. Yeah, and then, I guess, so then she's living in the brothel by herself. Okay, so... Sonia tells her that they're going to go to the Black Forest, and she tells her to hide in the costume closet, but then she never shows back up. And she puts on this bird costume and leaves and goes to confront her mom. And she says she doesn't remember what happened, but she's drawn with, like, blood on her hands and, like, holding a bloody knife. And then her mother is... Is she dead? I guess. She doesn't show back up again, so, I mean, I think, I think location... Because later on, she meets another one of the prostitutes, and they said she said something about, that's pretty bold for someone who killed her mother or something yeah. like that. But then we find out that her mom sold her to the brothel, who then sells her to the pharmacy, which is also horrific. This place is horrible. Yeah. Uh, it's like this doctor runs this like child prostitution ring out of this pharmacy, and she gets linked up with this other girl who is named Dolly, or at least we're told she's named Dolly. Yeah, and I think with this, I can't, there's some, Anka doesn't understand what's going on, and there's a sort of vague code words that they use about, like, getting a treatment, which is like Mm -hmm. ordering a child prostitute, and then your medicine is the prostitute, and there's a code way of ordering what you want, and then she doesn't quite understand what's going to happen to her, and Dolly, who is, like, not even much older, but she's much more experience in what goes on tries to help her understand what's going to be happening yeah and tries to help her build up like her defenses against this thing and then she sent off to her first job but we get another like hor- like the dude these dudes are drawn like as horrifically monstrous and they you know they're in contrast to the monsters that uh karen likes these guys are like these these horrible like troll-like beings she has like her first uh she sent 
to this... Oh, no, she's, like, imagining this monster. But she's sent to this guy who ends up being this, like... What is this guy's name? He's, like, this rich dude who lives in this city. And he becomes, like, this more sort of constant figure for her. Schultz. Mr. Schultz. Herr Schultz. Yeah, and he's kind of, like... He's a creepy figure, but then he is... He has these sort of impulses, and then he's disgusted by having his own impulses, but he doesn't stop doing... He's a really chilling portrayal of an abuser because he presents himself as being very collected and reasonable and, like, almost fatherly in, like, a distant and stern way. And he rationalizes the horrible things he does as being something that's, like beyond his control that he's like managing as well as he can it's re he's really insidious uh and he is like not drawn to be physically monstrous because like he presents himself you know as this like really refined cultured guy uh then she gets back to the pharmacy where all the girls are living and she realizes she finds out that dolly is very sick Oh, yeah, but I mean, I think the implication here is that it's, like, for self-harm, yes. right? Like, because she finds, like, a bloody spot on the bed that they share. And then the doctor said he's going to take her someplace to get better, and they go to this... They drive a long way out of Berlin to an old abbey that's in the forest. Yeah, and this is, like, one of the parts where the... it's unclear how much of this is real or not. Because, like, we know that Angra has problems keeping a hold of reality... And then also it's like the, the story, the comic already blends reality and fantasy and Karen has a really active imagination and loves horror movies. So it's like unclear how literal this next sequence is. But it's like they take Dolly away. She keeps asking after her and then eventually they're like, okay, well, you just go to where she is. It's not like immediate, like they take them both there. Yes. And they take her to this mansion and then like a 70s Italian horror movie happens. Yes. Where there's like this, they seem like a cult, they're wearing masks and robes, but it's also like there were the costumes and the brothel, so it's like, again, it's unclear exactly how literal this is, and it seems like they're going to, uh, like, do a demonic sacrifice on her, and then the spirit of Sonya intervenes and strikes them down with paralysis, uh, and then as she's running away, one of the guys in the robe who's had his like mask knocked off is like please uh you know it was just a game we weren't actually gonna harm you but she runs out of this like gothic mansion into the forest yeah she sees well she also briefly runs into what may or may not be dolly or the spirit of dolly or an entirely different person again a very ambiguous sequence but she runs in the forest and she's picked up by this couple who seem to have some understanding that like oh there's creepy stuff going on in the forest or in that mansion and she um overhears them talking and one of them says uh, uh she said she would drug the demon's wine and she finally did it so it's like okay so they maybe they they were just drugged by one of their servants and it wasn't like the ghost of Sonya intervening uh but she escapes and she realizes that these people whoever they are are very powerful and may or may not be looking for it but then it's also like how much of this is just her paranoia but she hooks back up with Schultz also throughout when she's telling the story there's little vignettes that show like modern day Anka and how 
she's getting increasingly, increasingly more drunk as she's relaying the story because the story is getting more and more painful for her to talk about. So then she, now she's at this point, I guess she's like a young teenager? Yeah, but she goes back to Schultz for protection and then there's this really, like, understatedly fucked up sequence where, like, when she first goes to Schultz, he spanks her. Like, that's part of his deal. When she goes, shows back up and it seems like he's gonna throw her out, she, like, appeals to his fucked up desires by, like, being a brat and, like, breaking his glass-blown apples to, like, make him desire her. To punish her, because that's another one of his things. Yeah, and that's, like, she uses that to, like, help protect herself. It's, like, it's very fraught. But, yeah, so she ends up staying with him for a while. Uh, she sees an obituary, and it's got the guy from the mansion. It looks like it might be the guy from the mansion. Yeah. And so it's, like, the implication is that Schultz had this dude killed to protect her. And then, eventually, she just, like gets too old for him and he like sends her away with like a letter of recommendation but also at this time it's the rise of the third Reich. yeah so she's like an adult now she's living on her own and the nazis come to power and we get through her life this sequence of you know the breakdown of society as the nazis exert their influence you know because she's she's jewish um and like also, she's an outsider in her neighborhood, so they don't offer any kind of help to her. Yeah, and then, you know, uh, there's, you know, we see, like, the yellow stars come out. Uh, all these things sort of shut down. We see the this the thing that's not really talked about a lot in... Uh, well, she talks about specifically how it's not talked about a lot in these histories and, and stories about the Holocaust is the way that they went after the sex workers, and sort of pinned a lot of, like, what they saw to be society's ills on them. And, like, they got scapegoated as well. And we see, like, the brothel get shut down. And stuff like that. And then eventually she ends up, you know, on one of the trains. And when she arrives at the concentration camp, she... Again, like, similar to the part with the uh, glass apples. She constructs this plan to, like, contact Schultz and be like... To arrange freedom for herself and some other people by saying that she is going to run a pharmacy. Yeah, and she's kind of like forced to do what happened to her to other people. And it kind of, I think, wrecks her a little bit that she has to sort of like begin to do the same things that were done to her to ensure her freedom. Yeah, I think like the whole Anka thing, it's like, it's really dark and it's really fucked up. But I think... You know, it presents this perspective that I don't think you see a lot where, you know, a lot of stories about stuff like the Holocaust is about, like, people that are living, like, a relatively okay or good life who's, like, you know, you read, like, Mouse, right? Like, the dude in Mouse, our Spiegelman's dad, is, like, living a pretty good life before things go wrong. And there's, like, this tragedy of loss, right? Uh, but... For a lot of people, like, the world has always been pretty bad. For a lot of people, their lives were probably pretty bad. And then they got worse. And, like, with Anka, we see this story of someone who, like, fights tooth and nail to escape from this, like, hell. And then the whole world turns into hell. The whole... The thing that she was fighting to escape is what the whole world becomes around her. And then she has to, like, recreate 
the conditions of her own suffering to try and alleviate the suffering of others. Like, it's, uh, it's really something. It's upsetting. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's clear that as they're listening to the tape, Sam is getting increasingly more upset and at this end or drunk himself. Mm-hmm. And he ends up laying on the floor. And at the end of the cassette, he doesn't want Karen to hear anymore. And he tells her to go home. But then she realizes that at one point that Sam went into the bedroom and he heard, she heard paper ripping. So when he passes out, she goes into the bedroom and she finds pieces of a photograph. Mm-hmm. And then they're also drawn into the story, these pieces, and it's just like a little girl, an innocent-looking little girl. Yeah. She also at one point takes the tape and tries to listen to it right, on her own. She takes the second th- tape. This story, we sort of, I told it like all at once, but it's more broken up. Like you said, it cuts back to Anka telling the story in the past. It cuts back to them listening to it. There's this interlude where she takes the tape, and then Sam confronts her about it, and then they agree to listen to the rest of the tapes together because it's important. It's interesting because the tape says Anka Silverberg's testimony. And then the picture says tape two of five. Mm -hmm. So she takes the tape and she goes home. And then there's like a thing where she spends time with her mother who is losing her hair because of the cancer. And she's wearing this sort of... um, Headscarf. Headscarf. I think this is the sequence, right, where she gives them the brownies? Yes. Because she, like, understands on some level that they help you chill out. And so they, like, watch TV and they have this, like, nice moment together. Uh, And then she overhears Mr. Gronin and his wife fighting and he catches her. uh, And she runs away. And then we get another sequence with, like, her and Yeah, she's taking out the trash and then she starts eavesdropping on their argument. Yeah. Uh, but that leads to him, like, basically hiring her to be his little spy and to tell him what his wife gets up to when he's not around. Because he's going to go to jail for a while. Right. Uh, and he leaves, like, snickering, and he's, like, this very sinister figure. But he's also, like, he's the guy that owns the apartment. He helps them out, and he, like, freezes their rent. Well, he does more for them than the fucking government did for us during the pandemic. He freezes the rent while her mom is sick and, like gives Dee some money. I like the part where she's like, I know, I know, no snooping. And he was like, no. He gets like angry. And she's, it's because it's like, like, more snooping? He's like, now we're talking. (laughs) Yeah, he's like depicted as a sort of like Al Capone gangster. Like, he's like a small time thug who's also like a gangster. Yeah, he's a very like, he's like, you know, you know how it's like, oh, like Anka runs into a 70s horror movie. He's like a like, there's, like, a Scorsese movie happening, like, off to the side from the rest of the story. Though, I mean, like, honestly, like, if they were gonna... He, Scorsese, Scorsese could direct the shit out of an adaptation of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now she is... As, has this job snooping for Gronin. Or snooping on Gronin's behalf on his wife while he is in jail. Right. And then we get another, like, the, another really fucked up sequence where she's accosted by some bullies, these dude, these boys from her class. Right. Who, like, push her down and... It looks like they're going to try to rape her. Yeah. Uh, but before anything can happen, uh, this kid Franklin intervenes, who we see earlier on in the class. He's, like, this young black kid 
who has a big forehead and kind of looks like Frankenstein. And he's got a lot of scars. Now, kind of looks like Frankenstein is a good thing in this book, right? Like, she, if you're identified with a monster, it means she likes you. It's not well, her bullying him. He's one of the kids that likes her Valentine. He's the he, only one. Well, he her can't... and Sandy, I guess. Or him and Sandy are the only ones that mm-hmm. like her, her Valentine. So he he's, you know, this big tall kid. And he steps in and intervenes. Uh, and he's very, like, after he stands up for her, he's suddenly, like, very gentle. Uh, and she calls, she, he's, like, starts, like, helping her up, and she, like, talks about his, him being kind of, like, a neat freak. I know his hands are, like, little birds, and there's this, like, surreal sequence where his hands, like, become these, like, literal birds that are, like, helping her. Uh, you know, and he is drawn to look a lot like the, well, again, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. Yeah, and I think, I mean, once you realize that Karen depicts the people that she cares about as the monsters, then you realize that she likes Franklin. And they become friends, and she and Sandy and Franklin are hanging out, and she takes them to the Art Institute to experience art. They realize after the bully thing that if they go back to school, they're just going to get in trouble because of the fracas with the bullies. And it's that classic thing of like, of course, the like the white boys are they're going to believe those over the girl and the black kid. Yeah. So so they decide to play hooky for the day and go. And she says, "I'll take you someplace really cool." And she takes him to the art institute. There's also this really beautiful sequence where she draws Franklin, uh, and she draws like his scars as like light breaking through his skin. And that's when it's the same sort of. It's similar to what happens when she goes with Deeds, where they become immersed in the art and then Karen starts to depict Franklin in the different portraits that she finds. Yeah, and he's like very into like fashion and clothes and he's like analyzing the clothing on all of the, you know, the people in the portraits. I couldn't decide if he was trans or he was just gay and he was, he had to suppress acting the way that he felt comfortable the, the acting. The implication I got is that he is supposed to be gay and that his scars came from a homophobic attack in his own neighborhood. Because, I mean, and there's a whole page where she he she depicts Franklin as a woman. Yeah, well, that's like, because he's even, talking, every time he's analyzing the clothes, she, and a lot of the clothes that he, all the clothes that he's analyzing are women's clothes, but then the last painting he's connected with is this monk... Mm-hmm. who's had his tongue torn out and like that's where we get his story where he's like oh you wore your best coat in the wrong neighborhood too huh and then you just couldn't stop you could not stop yourself from offering style advice to boys with knives you just couldn't hold your tongue and the monk has like this like wild robe with like images on and he's but he's holding his own severed tongue and so it's like okay so Karen can relate to Franklin because he also hides his true Identity, and then Sandy is just obsessed with a giant Dutch, like a Flemish portrait of food. Yeah, that she. But it's interesting because she, Karen, who's sort of reserved, has opened up to these people, and she shares like a very personal experience that she has, which is going to the art museum with her brother, and they become friends. It's really nice. That's a really sweet scene where, like, these misfits come together. Yeah, and then she has this, like, wild sequence where she's like, what are they, they're looking at this painting, 
The Temptation of Magdalene uh, by Jacob Jordans. She, like, the... It reminds her of Anka, and then she notices this, like, demon in the shadows of the painting. And it, like... Comes to life. Comes to life. And she gets accosted by, like, an angel. And she has a conversation with the demon. And this is basically where she does actually... She, this is her wrestling with the idea that, like, maybe Anka's, like, depression and trauma just pushed her to kill herself. And that's what the demon represents. And the demon's straight up like, yo, dude, like... I would love to take credit for this. I didn't do it. <laughs> Something else happened. And that's when she realizes that that night where Anka was wandering around and her mom had to step in to save her, she thought she was saying shoots, but she realizes now after having listened to the tapes that she was saying shuts. Which is, I think I called him Schultz. I meant shuts. That, that's the name of the, the rich creepazoid right. that she took up with. So it's like, there's maybe something more. Like, th- this is one of the things that's not totally resolved by the end. But, like, maybe there's some, like, Hitchcockian thriller thing going on here that she's just now becoming aware of. Well, I think also, this is when I realized that when she was out wandering and she was sort of in that fugue state, was the time that she was recording this testimony. And then reliving those memories caused her to have this sort of break. Yeah. But then they leave the art museum and they get on the train and there's a woman crying, uh, a black woman crying, and Franklin asks her, what's wrong? And they, this is when they find out that while they were in the art museum, yeah. Martin Luther King was assassinated. And this, like, looms over this, like, the next, you know, few sections of the story Well, I think it really affects the neighborhood in general because the neighborhood is mixed and there's lots of different types of people and they're all sort of dealing with some kind of social injustice. Mm -hmm. And so they're really kind of like deeply affected by the death of Martin Luther King because he was sort of an icon and he was an inspiration to them. Yeah, and it's like there's a part where... uh... You know, there's, like, this bubbling up unrest in the city. And Franklin says he's going to walk Karen home because things are weird out. And when they're walking home, some asshole uh, makes a crack about the death to Franklin. And she sort of, like, tries to stand up for him. And she's like, oh, just ignore that guy. He's, like, a a professional butthole. (laughs) And Franklin's like, look, I don't need you defending me. Like, he's clearly, like, you know, not handling this well. And they sort of split up for a while. And through him we get to see the beginning of this, like, bubbling up reaction to the death. And, like, she goes home and she has, like, a conversation with Dee's. And he pretends to... Also, early on there's a part where... Because Dee's initially is, like, a greaser sort of figure. He's got, like, slick back hair. And they talk about how maybe it's time for him to to get with the times... Uh, and he gets a haircut, and now we see him, and he's, like, fully, like, a mod in, like, a Beatles outfit with a Beatles haircut and a narrow jacket. Still very hot. Um, but we find out, like, like he basically, her mom is so sensitive that she never wants to punish Karen. So she makes Dee's do it. But Dee's doesn't care to do that. So right. they do this, like, passion play where he closes the door to his room and, like, 
hits his like belt against the floor and she goes, ow, oh no, ow. Yeah, and it's just like, it's like the ritual that the mom does to burn away the omen. It, it is like a ritual to absolve ourselves of these sins. We, we play at this violent retribution, but it's not a thing that they actually do. That's a really sweet sequence. I love but then yeah. it goes overboard because Dee starts freaking out. And he won't stop. He, like, goes wild with this, like, fake violence on the air. And it's clear that he's, like, dealing uh, with something, with some sort of guilt. And he says, it was me. I pulled the trigger. And she's like, you didn't kill Dr. King. And it's like, I, I you used to call him your main man, Martin. And he's like, no, it wasn't. He isn't who I shot, Karen. It was, even he says it was an accident, doesn't know what it is. And she clearly thinks that he's talking about Hanka. Yeah. But the mom wanted Karen to be punished because she disappeared for the entire day. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. So she's suspended from school. Well, that's the thing. She thinks she's suspended from school. We find out later that they gave her time off because they realize now that her mom's condition is terminal. So this is when um, Deez's friend shows up. And he is depicted as the sort of caterpillar. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think he's also kind of connected with like aliens and mad science. And he's got big, (laughs) thick glasses uh, and he wants them to watch his uh, pet rabbit while he... Yeah, where does he go? He's going down to the funeral. Yeah, but then he's gone for a few days because they have the rabbit for a while. But then it, the mom has a weird connection to the rabbit. For some reason, the rabbit hates everybody except for their mother. Yeah, but she she also, at this point, she overhears a conversation. Uh, Dee's and... The brain are smoking and watching the news, and she overhears the conversation. And he talks about how Dee's is like, yeah, like he got contacted by their dad, and he won't let the dad near them because it's uh, some point thing happened uh, when Karen was a baby and he nearly killed her. But now he's demanding that when the mom dies, he get the ins- gets the insurance money. And that he'll exercise his parental rights, and that means that Dee's will lose custody of Karen, but there's no insurance policy, so he has no money to give him, uh, and also he might get drafted. Yes, that's right. And Gronin has, he, this is where we find out that Gronin's pulled some strings, and he's kept him out of Vietnam. He's also been helping them with their rent money, and helping the mother out. Because she's been sick. But also his wife is blackmailing Dee's into having an affair with her. Right. Which now Karen knows and is obligated <laughs> to tell Mr. Gronin. But if she does that, he'll almost certainly kill her brother. Because he's a mobster. But I think Mr. Gronin knows because he wanted to find out who his wife was stepping out with. Yes, he knows that she's cheating on him. But I don't think he knows that it's with Dee's. Uh, yes, because... Dee's is being blackmailed because they knew about his relationship with Anka. Mm-hmm. And then we get more, we get some of the so rabbit. And then he calls him in the prison. This is so funny. And he's yeah. depicted as wearing this black and white striped prison outfit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because it's clearly just like Karen's interpretation. Oh, also, just to be clear, uh, the brain's rabbit is named Raymond or Raymundo or the Ray God. Yeah. And he's a huge dick, but he loves the mom. And he's drawn with, like, cartoon angry eyebrows all the time. And he's, like, <laughs> screaming. And she, he's, like, she puts words into his mouth. The first thing the rabbit says is, ew. And then put one hand on me and I swear to God I will bite the living crap out of you. <laughs> but he loves her mom. Which is good because she takes comfort in him. 
So that's sweet. Yeah. And then we meet the character. I guess his character really we don't see a lot of, but I'm assuming he'll be in the second part as yeah, well. Yeah, because later on he's given like a full in, like monster introduction, which means he's important. Because he delivers some money to... What is, we'll get his name later. But he's the guy who works for uh, Mr. Drone and he delivers some money to them. Uh, and then Missy shows up and... She sees the money. Yeah. Uh, and she's crying, and she invites Karen to her birthday party. And this part was super relatable to me, where someone is seemingly nice to you when you're as a kid, and you're trying to figure out if they're secretly bullying you or not. Well, yeah, now she's kind of a little bit suspicious. She's, she realizes that there's entirely possible that this is like a trap. That she basically she's going to get carried, right? But she decides that she's going to trust Missy, and she's going to go to the birthday party. But then before they get to the birthday party scene, we see more of Anka's story. And this is when we learn more about her. Um, yeah, this is her like arriving at the camp. Yeah. In the sequence. This is when Karen has the tape and is listening to it on her own. And this is kind of like a really chilling part. And I guess this comes up a lot when people talk about the Holocaust. But that scene where when they get off the train they're walking through a town and it's supposed to be like you're gonna live in this town and you know you're gonna be a worker and then the people as they're walking through the town realize that the town is fake yeah and it's kind of like a really disturbing kind of scene and that's when they realize that like there's a really sad part where there's a bunch of shoes in the window of a shoe store and then Anka starts to realize that they're like the people's possessions that they took off them. Yeah, she like goes up to the windows of the shops and like she starts to realize that it's fake and it's like the people in the bakery are like mannequins and then the cake has like a rat eating it. Yeah, it's kind I mean, of imagine being a per like a person like Anka, like someone who's already struggling with some sort of mental illness or whatever, or will eventually struggle with that, and having to deal with this like fake town that's like a basically like a giant like venus flytrap it's really horrific and then that's when we she starts to make the plan to do the well yeah she finds a kid that's lost and she starts taking care of this kid and that like makes her realize how dire the situation like that she has to do she has the power to do something and she has to do it which is kind of like it's sad because she has to do what was done to her to survive but then it's also disturbing and you realize how messed up Anka is, is that she thinks she's going to be helping these children. Yeah. Like, their fate with her is better than the fate of being in the camp. And it's kind of like you're in a situation where that's the only positive decision you can make. It's really sort of putting people in this sort of unattainable situation. Well, yeah. And it also, like, it drives home this, like, creating these horrible, you know... You, you do something horrible to a person, you create a horrible atmosphere, and then, like, that almost always incentivizes them to also be horrible. Uh, but yeah, no, it's really, really complicated and really dark and really fucked up. So then it goes on, and now it's time for Karen to go to the birthday. And then there's this kind of funny scene where the mom has this thing she calls the Zarnoff Award for, like, being, like... Yeah, it's like a family inside joke. 
Yeah, and then the brother's always winning it for dumb stuff that he does. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, oh, something stupid. So you get the Zarnoff Award for doing whatever stupid thing he did. Also important, though, in the sequence where she calls Schultz, calls Schutz to set up the pharmacy to get out of the camp, he's, like, smelling a rose. Yeah. And, like, the rose is in the basement. The rose is connected to, like, Anka's past and her trouble and possibly her death. And it's sort of underlining... This, like, growing suspicion that Karen has now that he is involved in some way in her murder. Yeah, and so then Karen decides she's going to go to Missy's party, and Dee's takes her. And, of course, as soon as he gets there, someone hits on Dee's, says, come up to my apartment. So he drops her off at the party and then goes up to the apartment. And then all the parents are like, oh, this kid. Yeah, and it also becomes clear in this sequence that uh, the re- that their end of their friendship came at the behest of Missy's mom, who started to put together that Karen had a thing for her daughter, and she didn't like it. She didn't like it, and so that she kind of p- pressured Missy into embracing this sort of like you know popular girl aesthetic. And Karen realizes that like underneath it all, she's still like her her friend uh, that she you know had this crush on before. And she's, they start to re, sort of rebuild their friendship in secret mm-hmm. from this sequence on. But yeah, she goes and finds Dee's again. They look out uh, the window and they see that there's like rioting and stuff happening in response to the death of Martin Luther King. And it's very, it's almost distressingly familiar to people who lived through 2020. Uh yeah, and then there's, like, a really, like, Deez talks to her about her defense mechanism of portraying herself as a werewolf. And they have a scene where he says, look at yourself, and then it cuts to a full page, and you see Karen as a little girl. And she's wearing her detective hat, and her brother is just a regular guy. Yeah, when they're talking about their mom, it's, he's realizing that, like, th- this is their conversation that's, like, leading up to, like, we have to accept that mom is gonna die. Uh, and then, uh, but that's also where she, like, basically comes out to him. He's, like, you know, he's talking about, like, oh, like, what about boys and stuff? And then she's, like, look, I'm like you. I like girls. And it takes him, like, a second to deal with that. And then, like, I feel like this is a very realistic portrayal of coming out like in this time period like he's not like he doesn't react with horror or anything and he's not mad and he's not telling her like that's not true or whatever but he is like look you have to understand that like people are not going to want to hear that and they're not going to have their reactions to that are going to be extreme and he's like worried for her yeah and then he kind of was like kind of put like put a pin in that until we deal with mom because she can't really deal with this right now yeah but he, he's also like, I'm glad I told you. Like, it's 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 like one of those things where it's not like cloyingly happy, but it is like positive, but it's still realistic about how kind of fucked up the world is. Yeah, and this is when we learn about Mr. Gronin's wife and Dee's, yeah. and then there's a really sad scene of the mom with the rabbit, and she's getting sicker, and then there's scenes about. She sort of, like, draws everybody that she knows, like, sleeping. It's, like, this, like, piece of night sort of sequence. Yeah, Sandy's, like, thinking about, like, candy bars. And Franklin has this, like, face, like, sleeping mask on. And he's talking, he's thinking about, like, fashion and 
Missy's thinking that she's Countess Alucard. Yeah, and then she's he she uh, reflects on this like uh, poster that Dee's has of this painting uh, called "De Toulouse Tormented by Demons," and she's this she sort of reflects on like the thing that we touched on, like the difference between the good monster and a bad monster. Looking at the poster, I knew there were good monsters and bad ones. Monsters who murder the monsters who murdered Reverend King and the president were the worst monsters. Those are the kinds of monsters who want no one to be afraid. The bad monsters want the world to look the way they want to do. They need people to be afraid. They don't live in their lairs and mostly mind their own abyss. I guess that's the difference. A good monster gives somebody a fright because they're weird-looking and fangy. In fact, that is beyond their control. But bad monsters are all about control. They want the whole world to be scared so that bad monsters can call the shots. Yeah, you know, they try to have this, like... <laughs> Dee's tries to tell her that monsters aren't real. You know, and it's like, oh, like, mom can't be a monster. She's too tender-hearted. And then we get the sequence where she meets the, uh... Salvatore? Yeah, the guy who, he's, like, connected with the creature from the Black Lagoon. And he's been... His job is to, like, hang out across the street and spy on the apartment building for Mr. Gronin. And we really start to understand that Mr. Gronin is, like, mad paranoid. Uh... And that's when she learns about her... Victor, her other brother that was killed. Yeah, because this guy let slip. He's like, yeah, I've been watching this building since before you were born. I was here back when poor Victor was killed by your... And then she's like, I was freaked. But we don't hear what he actually said. But it's clear he's talking about these because in the sort of next sequence, the mom dies. And there's a really sad thing where the rabbit is like there and he's like, the rabbit sees her die and he goes over to the corner and she kind of has this like vision of her like soul going up through the the crack in the corner of the apartment and like this cracker jack box gets knocked over and she kind of sees her mom doing it it's also very similar to the thing with sonia uh intervening in the the cult sequence but she finds she opens up this cracker jack thing and it has this like dried rose and a safety pin and Dee sort of freaks out when he sees her with this and then they have the funeral for the mom and everybody's there including the rabbit and Dee's kind of wanders off in a fugue and starts talking about Victor and he goes towards this grave but the grave is for some kid named Josie like it's unrelated apparently but then that kind of leads into the last sort of sequence of the story, which is almost entirely like this sort of dream fantasy sequence where she uh, she sees like the spirit of Anka and like St. Christopher and a burning giraffe. And they all call her little artist and sort of like she has this like confrontation with the monsters and like is angry about them not being able to save her mom. Like, she's like, oh, you didn't want me and my mama in your club, and now she's dead. And, like, in the dream scene when she, like, kills all the universal monsters. Uh, and, like, feels, like, this horrible guilt for it. And then there's this part where she's talking to, like, this vision of Anka in the dream, and they're, like, back in the cemetery. And she says, Anka, who murdered you? And she says, you already know who did it, but if you need a clue, you'll have to follow me to Hades. And we see an image of the green man. And we know, like, the... That's in the basement, that's in the door to the basement, and it's like, I think the implication here is that she was killed for some reason by Mr. Grumman. 
Yeah, because there's a scene where she's depicted almost like um, a Greek goddess, and she's wearing a tunic, and she mm-hmm. has like her hair up, and she has some kind of like tiara on, and then she's on her shoulder. There's a red box that's stripping blood, and then Karen looks in there, and that's where she sees the Green Man. Yeah, and then she tries to go to Green Island, but she's not how that sure that's going to work with her mom gone. We get this sequence of her running through these paintings, uh, which are all really beautiful. And then she gets... They're all, yeah, they're all landscapes. She gets to Green Island, and it's, like, covered in these, like, fairy modes. And there's these incredibly detailed pictures of the forest and the water. And she, like, lays down on this stump, and she hears footsteps, and someone's approaching. And she's like, hey, you know, I'm a, if you're a monster, like, I'm a big supporter of monsters. So, like, just maybe keep that in mind if you're going <laughs> to attack me. And then she sees D's, but he's, like, covered in eyes. And she says, like, D's. And the last panel, the last thing of the story is him answering and saying, no, I'm your brother, Victor. So she had a brother, Victor. They were twins or something. Or maybe they could be twins. It could also just be that, like, she doesn't know what he looked like. When she thinks about her brother, she thinks about D's. So she sees him as D's. So they could also be twins. Steez killed him for some reason? So those are the big, like, hanging questions at the end of this is, who killed Anka? It was probably Mr. Gronin. Why? Unclear. Who is Victor? It's I guess it's her brother, but why did Deez kill her brother? Is there anything else? I, I thought maybe it was, like, an accident. We don't know the details, but I'm thinking it might have been an accidental That's what it seems like. Death? Yeah, but he says he pulled the trigger. Like, it seems like maybe they were fighting or something, yeah. and, he, and he shot him by accident. I don't know. It's like I'm saying, I think that this is, works perfectly fine as, like, an ambiguous ending. I am very interested to see what actually happens. I think it's amazing. I think this is a genuine masterpiece. I would... I don't know if I agree with this sentiment, but if somebody said to me uh, that they thought this was the best comic of the 21st century, I would be like, fair point. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. I think it's just... It's so... I wouldn't be compelled to offer counterpoints. Right. There's just so emotion there's so much emotion in this yeah. I mean there are parts when I was reading it that I was tearing up the, fir- the first time I read it through I really was tearing oh, up oh there were, there were, there were parts it, that got me like that too for sure and I feel like it, it definitely is like a master work like yeah. Ferris is an amazing artist she's an amazing writer and this story is so rich and so compelling yeah I think like we talked about it before and you, you said the thing that you said to me well, I believe mean, we had to record this episode twice because of technical difficulties. The first recording, I remember you saying the thing about, like, this is a graphic novel. And my response was, like, yes, it's an extremely novely ass graphic novel. And I feel like that's true. Like, this has, this to me stands, like, up there with any other sort of, like, great modern American novel. I definitely, I think at one point when I was introduced, Talking about this in an episode leading up to it, I drew the comparison between this and, like, the works of Michael Chabon and Jonathan Latham. And I meant that mostly, like, in that it uses a character's fixation on pop culture as a way to expand their characterization. But I also just think in, like, terms of, like, the breadth and depth of the work, it's absolutely of a piece with the stuff that those dudes write. Yeah, but I think, as opposed to being sort of, like, an illustrated novel... The story needs the graphics. I mean, yeah, it does an incre- she does an incredible job with the medium and using it in ways that are, like, 
totally original. Like I said, I don't know of any other comic that's really structured like this, but she uses the like the page. She uses the the style she draws it, like affects the story and feeds back into it. It doesn't look like any other comic. Like there's clear influences, right? Like you can read this and and be reminded of like Dan Klaus and Charles Burns and. Uh, you know, lots of other, you know, the Los Bros Hernandez, but it's like really its own thing. You could not mistake this for a work by any other artist. Yeah. And it's just really like impressive. Like it's... Like I don't think that it's autobiographical, but I do think that there are lots of personal elements well, in this story. I think it's a lot appropriate. I didn't mean to do this, but I think it's appropriate that we did this the same month that we did work by A.S. Byatt. Because I feel like it's that similar thing is going on there. Where, you know, it's a writer drawing heavily from their own life without replicating the story of their own life. It's amazing to me that this is a first novel. Yeah. First published work. And I feel like I can understand why it took so long to create it. Because the level of detail in the drawings is amazing. Mm-hmm. The story is also really compelling and difficult. So I could see that emotionally to create something like this would be very draining. Yeah. And like the hardship that she had to work through to be able to produce this work of art. I mean, it's like you said, it's phenomenal. It really is. And I would, I mean, I. I'm eager to see part two because I want to find out how the story ends. Mm-hmm. But like you said, you could really just be satisfied with... I, I think so. I didn't even realize there was supposed to be part two the first time I read it. Oh, really? And then I got to the end and I was like, oh, that's weird, but okay. And then I, I read, reading up about it, I found out that, you know, the thing we talked about where it was originally split up. The only thing I would have to say for my own personal experience we both read it as a digital work and i think it would have been enriched to read it in the print format yeah i think i would agree with that i'm hoping that when the part two comes out they'll do like a big omnibus of both parts together yeah that would be really great i would really like to to see that but yeah i think it reads perfectly fine digitally and there are some advantages to it because the pages are so dense you, there's some. You, it's nice to be able to zoom in, but I definitely feel like this feels like it was made to be a physical object, and it probably reads best like that. But I was going to say, like, the pages are really dense, and then she also uses the fact that it's like a notebook to do stuff like writing into margins and like slanting the text to fit on the page that give it like this more naturalistic feel that I really dig. I think. The latest news from about part two is it's supposed to be published in September. Yeah, that's what I was saying. There, that I, I the last date I saw was like September something of twenty twenty, and that passed and it didn't come out. I assume that everything was just thrown off by the pandemic. I mean, it'll come out eventually. I don't, I don't know when exactly, but like I said, we'll definitely cover it on the podcast when it does come out, and probably anything else that she does, just because like. She just seems like such a singular artist. It would be right. a shame not to talk about definitely her works. But yeah, I think this is like a really... It's just really fucking well done. It's a great coming-of-age story. It's a compelling mystery. It's like... Yeah, it's really fucking good. It looks incredible. I highly recommend it. Like, it, you should... If you're interested in comics, 
and you can stomach the darker content, you should absolutely read this. Yeah, definitely. Do you have anything else to say about it? Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about it? I don't think so. No, I think we've pretty much exhausted it. Yeah, so the next thing we're going to do is we're going to read... Uh, we're going to read This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Yes. Which, spoiler alert, it's real good. And <laughs> we liked it. And it's a cool story. But that's good. That's um, you know, we're getting back into more recent science fiction. I think that's from 2019? Yeah, I had read it when it first came out. And that's why I recommended it. Because it's such an interesting experiment in writing. Yeah, it also would have made an incredible comic book. I would love to see a comic out of this I, I think I say that. Yeah, I, you think you do say that on the episode. <laughs> um, and then we're going to start our next ongoing series, which we've also already recorded the first episode of. We're going to be reading Animal Man by we just, Grant Morrison's Animal Man run from the like mid to late 80s. I think it starts in 86, 87. Spoiler alert, he has a great jacket. He does have a great jacket. Animal Man, one of the great jackets of... Not my favorite jacket, in, it's not Constantine level, Jack. No, I didn't talk about it in that episode, but later on, I'll, I'll go over Grant Morrison's history with superhero jackets because <laughs> it's a recurring motif in their work. But what we're gonna do, we're start with volume one. Obviously, there's three volumes. I don't think these have individual titles like the uh, Sandman ones do. No, but each issue does. Yeah, each issue does. Uh, but volume one covers like the first nine issues. The art is almost entirely by Chaz Truog. Uh, with some work by Doug Hazelwood and then one issue drawn by Tom Grummet. I'll just say this right now. That that volume's got the Coyote Gospel in it. So get ready. If you know if those words mean anything to you, get psyched to hear us talk about the Coyote Gospel. Yeah. And I think we're, after we're done with Animal Man, we're going to go right into Doom Patrol. But that won't be for a couple months. So, uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.